This podcast is with partners in love and life, Dr. Mark Gaffney and Christina Kincaid. They're both co-authors on the amazing book, A Return to Eros. Dr. Mark Gaffney is also a rabbi that's holding a lineage tradition that extends all the way back to King Solomon, down through the ages in this Kabbalist mystery school tradition that leads through Luria and Liner, and that Gaffney has understood, interpreted, and resurrected as one of the answers to some of the existential crises of our time. He's one of the greatest thinkers I have ever encountered, and I truly believe that his message is here to help guide us from our old story to the new story that can help humanity thrive for eons to come. And please stay tuned to the end of the podcast to hear a message from the heart about some of the reasons why I chose to podcast here again with Dr. Mark Gaffney. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Mudwater. Now, Mudwater is one of my favorite products that are out there in the health and wellness better for you space. It's a coffee alternative. It has four adaptogenic mushrooms. It has cacao, Ayurvedic herbs, and it's really a coffee alternative. It has a fraction of the caffeine of a cup of coffee, but I do like a little bit of caffeine, and Mudwater just hits that sweet spot. It doesn't have a bunch of sugar or anything in there, so if you want to add your own sweetener, you're welcome to, or if you're mixing it in a shake or a warm morning drink like I often do. It's just really a kind of a perfect product, and it's no surprise that Mudwater has done so well as a company because it's just phenomenal, and phenomenal all the way up, all the way down, not only from the quality of ingredients, the flavor profile, and also just the customer service and the ethos of the company itself. I am a huge fan. And again, cacao and chai for mood and a microdose of caffeine. They got lion's mane, which helps with cognitive support and alertness. Cordyceps, which is the flagship ingredient in our product, Shroom Tech Sport from Onnit. It's got chaga and reishi to support your immune system and offer that little bit of calm that comes with the reishi mushroom. Turmeric is also one of those great products for any kind of stiffness or soreness you might be feeling. And cinnamon, which is an ingredient that's very close to my heart, that also has a bunch of antioxidants and actually in high enough amounts can help with blood sugar regulation. I talk about that a bit in my book, Own the Day. So mud water is just one of those things that if you're curious about a coffee alternative and you like making delicious beverages, whether they're smoothies or hot drinks, I highly recommend it. It's Whole30 approved, 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, kosher certified. It's got all the goods. So go to mudwater.com slash amp. That's M-U-D-W-T-R.com slash amp. And you can use the code AMPMUD for 15% off your mudwater order. Once again, mudwater.com slash amp. Use code AMPMUD for 15% off. Next up, we have Titan. Now, this is a category that I've never talked about on a podcast before, but it's really important to figure out what you're going to do with your money. And this is something that when you're younger, it's just fine to have a checking account and maybe you'll put something in a savings account, but it's really actually not utilizing your money in the best way possible. So there's a lot of different levels on how you can actually manage your money, and Titan makes a lot of that really easy. So I wanted to just share 
this as one of those possible options. Now, once you go inside the Titan ecosystem, you can check out Kathy Wood's new ARK Venture Fund, which is exclusive on the investing app. And that is one of the first venture capital funds that's accessible to accredited and non-accredited investors. It means you can invest in ARK's big bets in both public and private markets with not a bunch of money, as little as 500 bucks. And previously, you would need substantial wealth and connections to access these types of funds, but they're actually democratizing the way that you're able to access them. So everyday investors can access the ARK venture funds. And to be clear, this is really something that's unique in the wealth management space. So if you want to get involved, it's simple. You sign up for the Titan app, you deposit money and purchase shares in the ARK Venture Fund. And then from there, Kathy Wood and her investment team at ARK invest and they really do the rest. So you're putting your money to work. Now, there's no guarantee that they're going to make money. The markets are chaotic and wild, but you'll at least know that you're investing with someone that has the expertise to really help navigate these what really are choppy waters right now. So if you haven't heard of Titan, of course, this is a very unique opportunity and getting your money actively managed in diversified income generating asset classes like private credit, private real estate, and access investment opportunities, of course, like I mentioned with ARC Venture. It really helps you build a more diversified portfolio without having to have the tons of cash that's usually required for that. So I'm not currently invested with Titan. And this is a paid partnership. And at the time of this reading, I am not yet invested in Titan's strategies. But if you're interested, go to titan.com slash amp and check it out. Once again, T-I-T-A-N.com slash amp. And finally, we have on it. And I want to spend this time talking about the four different types of alpha brain that Onnit is currently offering. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, alpha brain was on its flagship. It was the revolutionary nootropic formula tested twice in double-blind clinical trials and shown to be effective in helping improve focus and general cognitive function. So whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's studying or podcasting, it's something that you can put in your tool belt to help elevate your consciousness. But now we have four different iterations. And of course, there's the original capsuled alpha brain. And one of the advantages that I love about the original formula is the inclusion of cat's claw. Cat's claw is really long-term, highly neuroprotective. And so it's a very well-rounded brain formula. And then there's the instantized version, which comes in these little packets that are delicious that you can mix in water. Now, I typically bring those when I travel and you have the option. You can either drink it fast and get the full dose of original alpha brain immediately or drink it slow if you have a longer, more drawn out day where you wanna spread the effects out over an hour, two hours, just mix it in your water bottle. And again, it tastes awesome, so that's also an advantage. Then there's the alpha brain ready to drink shots. And you just rip the cap and drink the alpha brain, and it has a slight modification to the formula in that it includes a little bit of caffeine. And caffeine and alpha brain pair brilliantly together. So this is gonna pick up your energy as well as giving you the cholinergic boost that Alpha Brain is known for. And then there's the Cadillac, which is Alpha Brain Black Label. Alpha Brain Black Label has a couple different advantages. One is a full dose of mecunipurians, which increases and up-levels the availability of dopamine in the brain, which is great for modulating your mood into a much more positive state. Then there's a full, full dose 
of phosphatidylserine, which has a host of different benefits. Of course, there's the nutritional mushroom lion's mane and a variety of different ingredients that we put together. It took us over 10 years to develop a formula that was worthy of carrying the Alpha Brain name and being significantly different. And we did it with Alpha Brain Black Label. So that's a brief explanation of the four different types of Alpha Brain. So if you're interested, check it out. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and save 10% on all of the different Alpha Brains. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Mark Gaffney and Christina Kincaid. Mark. Hey, Aubrey. How are you, brother? Good to see you, man. Good to see you too. Yeah. Christina. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, hey, hey. Good to see you too. Yeah. Good to see you as well. Yeah. So all of us here in our own way have spent a good portion of our life and a big part of our dharma in service of the goddess. For you particularly, Mark, in all of the Abrahamic religions, there has been a big emphasis on the masculine presence of the divine that's what we look at we call it he god he and this has been carried on through the traditions in many ways and you came in and you reread the lineage texts all the way back to the ancient ancient texts and what you found was a through line where it was actually the goddess that was at the center of the temple mysteries she she. She. And she's been largely forgotten in our interpretation of what Judaism is, of what Christianity is, of what Islam is. In doing that, you became something of a heretic, of course. Changing the gender of the God that is worshipped, I mean, that's a, it's kind of a big deal. And I'm sure in your journey, you came up against a lot of resistance from conservative, traditional Jewish faith saying like, whoa, like, what are you doing here? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that the, um, the resistance isn't particularly from what you would think are the orthodoxies. In other words, but the, the sense of he the sense of rivalrous conflict right, governed by win-lose metrics actually moves throughout organized religion. And of course, Hebrew wisdom is no exception. And to actually find the root of she that's feeling differently, that's willing to put down the weapons and to actually open up is, is hard. Right, because mm-hmm. organized religions are are power structures, and I, I came from a, you know, a wonderful family and a complicated family and a poor family and a powerless family, right? and so I I stepped into that world, and she was, she was whispering in my ear from the very beginning, and I was trying to find her, and yet, I was operating deep in a, a set of establishments, that. That felt, that felt it threatening, mm-hmm. that the embodiment of it was threatening, and so there was a dance, and it was a, it was a, a painful, poignant, ecstatic dance that, 
in which many, many vessels were shattered. There's a lot of shattered, shattered vessels. There's sure. broken hearts and broken vessels. And it's the only way we can actually birth and be in devotion to she. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't regret a moment of it. Mm-hmm. And she's never left me. And oh my goddess. <laughs> right. The those who've defined themselves with a certain codification of knowledge, whether this is religious scholarship or whether this is some form of academic scholarship. Either way, I mean, there's actually been studies on this when there's a dominant, when there's a dominant viewpoint that exists within the academic structures, it actually requires that person to pass away. And, and I, I cited the study in the book until new citations are formed and new theories are formed. When there's a dominant structure, there's an energy, almost an immune system that protects it, that the person who holds it has so that they can establish themselves in the dominance hierarchy and their whole power structure. And actually the field itself has this kind of immune system and so your teachings have considerably come up against these structures. And we'll talk about, you know, some of the ways that this has transpired, of course, because there's, you know, a big issue to discuss on the table. But ultimately, the framework is that regardless of which way your life has gone, you've been someone who's been flipping over the tables of established thought and codification and the idea that people know something and they're empowered because of their knowledge base, right? Like yeah. You've been challenging that deeply. You know, beautifully said, I would just, you know, gently, tenderly, fiercely, and maybe today's about those two words, it's about so tenderly, right? Quivering tenderness and, and fierceness. It, just two, two things that just kind of come up. And one is, that you would think that the orthodoxies look like orthodoxies, but they're disguised in many distressing disguises. So people can speak a certain language, and that language might even be the language of she, right? It might be a language of of renewal, and it might be a language of, of goddess, but actually it's really he. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not about the language, it's about the, what's the consciousness within it, right? Are, are we really open to hold each other? Are we, re- we really willing to put down our swords and all of the implication of swords and actually love each other, not as a, not as a particular currency of power, Right? Even love can be hijacked for power. And I, I sometimes think, you know, when I, I read about the Borgias, you know, in the church, mm-hmm. of course, Machiavelli was very close to, to Borgia, the Pope's son. We're not surprised that they were corrupt because when we look at Catholic doctrine, with all of its beauty, there's a lot that we feel is, is corrupt, is tragic, is, 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 is just violating of what we understand the human being to be. So when a Pope is corrupt, we kind of expect it, right? But when in the worlds of human potential and the worlds of new age and the worlds in which we think we should know better, 
when the same kind of dominance hierarchy comes up, the same kind of movements of power come up, we're surprised because mm-hmm. the language seems to be right. right? It, it seems to be she, but it's actually the shadow of he. Mm-hmm. And so we'll just noticed, I noticed along the years that sometimes I would meet, you know, and maybe I'll leave, leave this with just this image. I was in Israel and the chief rabbi of Israel was named Avram Shapira. It's a little man, wise, feisty, you know, erudite, brilliant. And there were a group of rabbis in the particular area that I was who said, we need you to meet us at the chief rabbi's office. It's a meeting about Soviet Jewry. And I was 30. And I said, Soviet Jewry, that's a really important topic. Of course, I'll come. But why would they call me? And I I get to the chief rabbi's, the inner sanctum, the chief rabbi's office, and he's sitting there. He's, you know, 85 or what, you know, whatever age he was. And these seven rabbis are sitting around who are in the, the area in Samaria where I was the rabbi of a community. And I walk in and I realized the energy when I walked in, I said, this is not about Soviet jury. I am on trial here, right? <laughs> this was a, right? And they started asking me detailed questions in law, very arcane, detailed questions in the Aramaic law. And goddess has been good to me, so I know something about that, right? And they were surprised and I answered every single question and they just were like, you know, shocked. And then the chief rabbi says, Kulam Yitzu, right? Says, everyone, everyone, please leave. And then we're sitting looking at each other and I'm not sure is he going to blast me? And then he says, you know, shvanim, right? You know, kind of like rabbits, little people. <laughs> All the rabbis were left and he said, you know, I understand what you're doing. I'll protect you, hmm. right? And this was the chief rabbi of Israel, right? And there was she in front of me. She is this old man. So she appears in all sorts of disguises and you never know where she's going to appear. It's not split yeah. along the lines of the renewal people or the Orthodox people. It's about who a person is. Am I, am I in devotion to she? Or am I in what's ultimately some form of rivalrous conflict, which the currency that I'm using happens to be religious or spiritual, but, but ultimately yeah. I'm not in devotion to her. Right. So this rabbi was in devotion to her. Such a good distinction, such yeah. a good distinction. And that image really lands. Christina, I wanna go yeah. into your story a little bit because obviously massively successful career as a model, but through that process, you incurred some trauma, yeah. sexual trauma, which, you know, <laughs> I haven't been with a, I haven't been with a partner that's not experienced that. And that's, it's not like I'm pre-selecting for that category or like I'm attracted to the manifestations of that. It's just every time I get intimate with someone and really find the truth, it's there. And it's tragic. It's tragic. And so common. In our world and you know you had experienced this and that led you on your journey to heal yourself and then offer the insights to others so i don't mean to summarize your story for you but you know tell us a bit of of your journey through that process yeah 
Um, I didn't understand probably like a lot of your partners what had happened to me until later in my life. Um, I started having trigger memories when I was in my 20s and I was modeling and having this career and, um, and just started having sort of snippets of memories that started coming back to me out of nowhere. And I was sort of horrified and shocked and kind of terrified by them. And I obviously didn't understand what they were at the time. And um, then thread through started, you know, I started seeing some kind of thread through of something obviously happened to me. Um, and I even had very visceral <clears throat> memories of like coughing up um, I mean, I'll just say it, it was just ejaculate, like out of, like, I couldn't understand what was happening. I mean, it was, it, it, again, it was just shocking. And so I knew that I had to find a way to heal myself. I was also having um, issues with relationship. I couldn't see, you know, I couldn't understand why I, you know, was struggling so much. And um, so I, um, you know, I started all, I, I started traditional sort of allopathic kind of psychotherapy. And um, I did that for several years. And, you know, one day I just heard myself talking. I just, and I thought, okay, it's time to, it's time to go. This is not, you know, it was important to actually, um, begin to tell the story, but it actually wasn't, it wasn't healing. Um, and I realized that I had to go deeper. And so I, um, I started, uh, there was a school called the Barbara Brennan School of Healing. And it was kind of like a Harry Potter school for adults. And I thought, wow, in order to heal myself, I needed to walk through a different door a different door of, you know, there's sort of ordinary reality and then there's non-ordinary reality. And so I, um, my first year of school, um, like the first weekend, I met a woman who had had her own story of sexual abuse and she was starting to develop cancerous um, um, problems in, with her uterus and her female organs. And I thought, wow, I really have to... Uh, I have to. I have to find a way to heal myself, um, and so she introduced me to a shaman. Who <clears throat> I won't go into the whole story, but um, a shaman in Mexico who did an alternative kind of um, healing extraction. Um, and so I went to Mexico, and that door opened. Um, I went to see him, and um, you know, I there was a group of expats and a friend of mine who had a camera and um, they took me to see him and at the time this was 20 some years ago um, this was in Tulum when Tulum was there was no you know Tulum was just a dry and dusty road out to the to the beach um, but he lived in a on a a cliff overlooking the hills of overlooking the ruins in Tulum and um, I am um, they took me there. We walked up the the um, the hill, and it was hot as hell. And I thought, Oh Lord, you know, um, 
dun, dun, you know, maybe I shouldn't have come. And so mm-hmm. we got up there and out he comes. We didn't know he was there. We didn't have, you didn't have cell phones at the time. And um, out he comes, this little Mayan man with a pot belly. And um, they spoke no English. And so they basically said to um, him what was going on with me. And he was like, tell her to go inside and take off her clothes. And I thought, wow, okay, here we go. And um, I experienced, I won't go into detail um, because it's quite graphic, but I experienced a non-traditional kind of healing that actually, um, that actually uh, um, began me on a a deeper um, sort of understanding of sort of the images and the whole sort of construct and sort of narratives we have around sexuality. Because after, it was actually a vaginal extraction. You know, in shamanism, they do extractions in all different kinds of ways. Mm. And so it kind of, you know, rocked my world. And of course, you know, after I left, I thought, wow, did was did I just re-wound myself? Or was this a, you know, an actual healing? So just for context. Yeah. Um, in the ayahuasca traditions, mm-hmm. they call this type of work they call it chupar which is the sucking right so obviously you know this type of extraction that you're talking about super taboo you know it's not what you're going to find in a normal ayahuasca center because of course like it is so it's playing with fire at this point you know but ultimately so if you have something in your in your stomach or in your back i watch them with my friend, actually, in the first ayahuasca documentary I did, Don Robert, uh, Banco Corindero, out at Don Howard's place, he did a chupar on my friend Mitch Schultz's on his back. And uh, there was a healing mat in the center of the room, and he was just... And then he would almost gag and, yeah, and like purge and vomit and cough and, and do this. And So this is, a, this is a technique that they've learned through their thousands of years of, of lineage. But of course... When the trauma is sexual, well, so many of these things are reasonably so off the table because the impeccability required and then the the willingness to enter that space required, it's hardly ever going to be met in the right criteria for that to be warranted. But just wanted to put that out there that this idea of using sucking on a yeah. specific area where you've been injured or where you're holding something whether it's your liver or whether it's your spine or whether it's your heart like i've seen this many times and i've seen it effective on other areas so as crazy as this may sound like i've seen it in other forms so it's not like this one guy had this crazy idea this is part of a tradition just to add on to what you were just saying my friend um peter beard who was a photographer my he uh he was a friend of mine at the time and um, he was in Africa, and he got gored by an elephant um, in his hip. And um, the Maasai, you know, he wrote me these letters. He would write me from Africa these letters. And in one of the letters, it talks about how they cut him open and sucked the, he called it the evil L juices out of his hip. And so, just like you're saying, yes, those techniques have been used for thousands of years. But obviously, you know, in my own um especially in the world that I was traveling in, you know, after the the healing happened, I thought, wow, you know, 
I certainly can't go back and tell people about this. They'll think I've, you know, lost my mind or they won't understand. And And also it's potentially, it's iffy to tell people about this because then if they go down to their local Hollywood shaman and say, can you do a vaginal extraction for me? And they're with the wrong person. You know, I mean, I've heard stories of this same thing where it's like, you know, this is not held in the in the impeccability yeah. that's required. So it's it's interesting because it's a it's a very it's a very rare and unique path that this can actually be productive. So it's it's almost an impossibility to recommend it because yeah. of the specificity of the individual both both receiving and the individual providing that service. So it's like, look, I did this, but this is not a recommendation by any stretch right. of the imagination. So that's you know, it's important. Yeah. And I do want to say, um, um, later on, um, I actually did go back. I took another, I took a film crew with me, a woman um, um, who spoke Spanish. And we went back and he spoke a lot about his healing techniques and his healing art. And um, she felt confident when we left that he was integrous. And I did as well. You know, there were, like I said, there were doubts that came in from, you know, lots of different voices. But I was also experiencing something that was profoundly liberating. Um, and and just to say later on, just, you know, fast forward in terms of my, the, the Barbara Brennan School was, it was a four-year program. And um, for your senior year, you had to do a case study. And you had to do a session with um, a person who... Um, uh, you had to do 10 sessions, and um, then you had to present your case in front of the, uh, a group of faculty and students from the, from, the, from, from the school. And so I prayed, I was praying, I was praying, please, dear God, please, dear God, send me like the perfect, the perfect person um, for, this, for, for, my, for this healing. And um, I... Um, there's this guy who came forward. Um, there was a series of, you know, meetings and so on and so forth. But he was doubly incested in a kibbutz by both his mother and father. And I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to help this person, right? I have these 10 sessions. And, you know, I was learning. And I had been through four years. And I obviously had some ground and some, you know, skill sets in terms of the learning of the school. But in terms of actually working with someone with such a serious, you know, um, trauma. And he had been working, um, um, he was older, he was in his 50s, and um, he had been working with groups. Um, and he kind of developed this body of work where you're, it was about letting your genitals talk, right? And so he was a partner of Eve Ensler, who went on to write the vagina monologues. Wow. But um, so... Around the, you know, in, in Barbara Brennan, there's a particular protocol where you, you know, you start at the feet and then you go up the ankles and then the, the knees and then the legs up the body. And you're fully clothed and obviously the person's fully clothed. So it's very, very um, boundaried healing. Um, then you go up the chakras and so on and so forth. And so around the seventh healing, I, um, I heard my guidance say, um, put your heart over his genitals. And I thought, um, not sure I'm supposed to do that. Mm. <laughs> Hello? Um, mm. 
that's that's kind of against the boundaries in school, mm-hmm. you know. And then I heard it again. Put just put your heart down over, you know, his genitals. And I took a deep breath, and you know, I thought about it a little bit more, and I asked again, you know, are you sure? And the third time, it's gonna make me cry, but I just put my um, I just put my heart over over his genitals. And I realized, he started crying. He burst into tears. And it was like the first time he had been touched without a sexual intention in his genitals, right? Because, and I realized that's what the shaman did for me as well, right? There wasn't, there wasn't an intention sexually, even when he was doing the extraction. And that's what felt so different. It's all about intention, right? It's about, and so he could feel the, the, the love and that's what actually did the healing. Does that make sense? That, mm-hmm. that it, was, it was from a pure place. There wasn't a, a sexual intention to take anything or an expectation of, of anything. And so I realized, wow, that's what my guidance was trying to tell me when I was working with this, the, my, my case study. And so um, I wrote up the healing. You know, you have to write it all up and present it before the before the 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 faculty and the students and um almost got kicked out of school <laughs> and uh i had to do 20 more jungian sessions you know i had to you know to make sure i was had good enough boundaries to actually you know graduate from the school but i i it, it was an extraordinary gift to know um just to to receive that, to understand the the depth of of what that healing was about for me, and and that healing was about for him. Mm-hmm. So um, that was one, you know, part. You know, healing is a obviously a journey. And um, um, I went on to study a body of work called Core Energetics, which is based on Reich's work, which was a lot about you know. Um, learning how to read the emotional um, energy that creates the person's physiologic expression, and then using the that um, sort of um, energetic w- wisdom to actually, rather than going in through the head, you go in through the body, right? And so you can see the physiologic where the blocks are in the body. They teach you how to look and find the blocks and. You know, Reich's whole work was about, um, you know, helping liberate the armored man, right? We have mm-hmm. this, we, we develop this armor and, you know, this central channel gets blocked. And, you know, if we're not allowed to have our sex, then our, you know, our energy has to run around the second chakra. If we're not allowed to have a sense of self, our energy has to run around that. If we're not allowed to have the fullness of our heart, our energy runs that way. If we're not allowed to have our voice right? It runs around, right, into your, your ability to kind of visualize and um, create your life to your connection to source, right? And so when all of that's blocked, we live this kind of like awkward, weird configuration of, 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 of our divinity, I'll say, right? And then the work is to actually unblock and unarmor ourselves so that we can have this, the fullness of our being that, and connect to our divinity, yeah. And so um, 
I did that body of work for for many, many years. And, you know, I remember Barbara Brennan, um, you know, they said, when I first started school, your biggest wound will become your greatest gift. And I thought at the time, I was like, fuck, you know, I can't imagine how I would, um, I could, I could, Think of that kind of wounding as being a gift. And, you know, I, at the end of it, right, when you actually start to heal and you start to um, grow and learn, right, you realize you can actually turn around and give something back. So it does become a gift. And I, when I met Mark, and there's a kind of a long segue, and I, I, the other thing, I, you know, I traveled around the world with different kinds of healers and shamans to kind of understand. I had an anthropology background and studied primate behavior, but I was always curious about, you know, this whole process of healing. Like, what is healing? How do we heal? What needs to transpire in order for healing to happen? And, you know, what's the common thread among amongst cultures that, you know, that you— that we could kind of see how how healing works, right? Because it has to be obviously a humanistic, um, a deeper humanistic under, under understanding and experience. But before we before we yeah. go into the meeting with Mark, I just want to tell a story from my yeah. own life. Okay. Um, I was very fortunate. I had no real sexual trauma that wasn't basically self incurred. You know, I put so much pressure on myself to perform in everything in life. And obviously, with that much pressure, there were times where I didn't perform. And I had one particular partner who was pretty ruthless when I couldn't perform and, you know, bring her to climax. She would roll over, turn her back to me, wow. and, you know, shut me out and masturbate herself. Wow. And I would just be sitting there boiling in my own self-loathing, really not anger at her, just self-loathing that I was completely worthless and I'd failed as a man. And that, that was, that was deep, you know, yeah. and, and of course it's not the same stories of so many people that I know because it's not just women who've been abused. So many men that I know, especially so many high performing men, you know, part of what their desire to have this wealth and to have this power is is armor like you said it's just let me get so powerful that no one will ever hurt me again you know i didn't have that and and i feel very blessed for that but of course my own swords and daggers and poison arrows were pointed right back in me and i and other people reinforced that i was able to move through a lot of that thanks to you know loving partners like caitlin and the loving partners that I had and and Whitney and so many other loving, you know, beautiful partners. But there was still a lot that I needed to heal. And actually, as it was unhealed, you know, towards the end of my relationship with Whitney, that healing hadn't happened. And of course, polyamory is an incredibly challenging thing where it's not only one partner that I was worrying about satisfying, it was many partners and and it was not many, but, you know, the other paramours that I had, sometimes one other one or another one. And and so there was this feeling that the something was off and it actually manifested, as you described, obviously not as severe as the cancerous growths, but I would get these real dry patches on my penis that would just, it were incessant. There was no way that I could stop them. Like the skin would get really dry and peel. Yeah. 
And I was constantly doing, then the the scab, it would form like a scab and then it would come off and it wasn't an STD or anything like that. It was just like a skin condition, but it was entirely localized to my penis, right? And I was just, I thought, all right, this is what I have to deal with. And then I would get, you know, pains in my prostate and different things. And again, I was in a fairly loving situation. There was nothing like it was a, it was, I look back, it's a beautiful relationship I had. But when I got with Vailana, who's, her nature is as a healer and she's had you know as i said like her own traumas yeah and a lot of these traumas that she didn't remember and the healing between us started when before we were going to have like sex in the in the intercourse form where we're both entering into the sex together i was loving her sexually just in worship and when I would do that, she would cry. No. She would just cry and cry because no one had ever done that. No one had just loved her in that way without wanting anything, without needing their own pleasure. And, and that was part of her healing in the same way. And I'm no master healer or anything, but it was just love. It was just like what you did, just your heart. It was just my heart, my heart and her body. And, and time and time again, just crying. And she was like, okay. It's time for your healing. And she thought that she was going to have to do a lot of healing on my genitals. (laughs) That's where she thought it was going to be. And we actually, we took mushrooms together. And she went in with a full plan to heal my genitals. But in the medicine together, she realized that it was my heart. It was just my heart. And, And all of the healing went into my heart. And Yes, some, you know, sexual things happened, but that wasn't what was happening. What was happening is is she was showing me as an embodiment of the goddess that she was loving my heart and that all of that other stuff didn't matter. We were crying and I was crying. And not once since that moment have I had any issues come back. Not not one, not with the prostate, not with not with any of the dry skin patches. Wow. And you, something like that happens. It doesn't fit in the Western model, which, is, which doesn't understand the energetics of the body. It discards it entirely. And, but you experience something like that and you know, like mm-hmm. we are multifaceted, multidimensional, complex energetic beings and we store energetic trauma in different places. So I just wanted to share that story because it's personal to me and, yeah. and I know it and I felt it and Vi felt it. And, you know, we know how powerful that is. And of course, we're blessed in the fact that we were both able to offer that to each other, not because we're masters, but just because we had a lot of heart and, you know, some, some great intention. And of course, we've gotten more skilled at being able to heal each other since then because it opened our eyes. But it's uh, it's a powerful story about what can heal in yes. the container of sexuality yeah. when yeah. the trauma has come sexually. Yes, gorgeous. Thank you. So, Christina, now let's go to the part of the story where you meet Mark. And, of course, this is more complicated an issue because as someone who'd experienced sexual trauma, you're going to meet someone who had internet accusations of sexual abuse mm-hmm. right so this was a complicated decision at the start and of course i just want to help bring us into your mindset as you made the decisions along the path and you kind of encountered 
Mark as you know him, as your partner, as your lover. But of course, at first it wasn't. And just what was going through your mind and how that journey kind of took you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll say I, I had read some things about Mark before um, I went to the workshop. And um, I wanted to... The, the workshop that he was doing was called A Journey to Love. And at that time, you know, I had graduated from the core program and I was actually teaching at the Institute. And I was teaching um, the, 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 I was teaching sexuality. And so um, I'm ever curious. And I actually brought the executive director of the Institute with me <clears throat> to the workshop um, and another colleague. And, um, and um, when I, you know, I met Mark and um, he began this workshop, like I said, it was called A Journey to Love. And um, did you meet Mark or just see him on stage? No, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, a, a workshop kind of a, at this place called Shalom, at this place called Shalom Mountain. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, there were probably, it was a smaller group, but there were probably 40, 50 people there. Yeah, so somewhat mm-hmm. intimate. Yeah. And so um, not, not particularly, we didn't have any kind of, you know, close interaction. He, you know, came on and, you know, began the teachings. And um, um, so I, uh, by the second day, it was on a Saturday, um, there was a, you know, uh, I think there Thursday evening or Friday. And then Saturday um, afternoon, we were getting ready to break for lunch. And Mark was giving basically a dharmic transmission, which I didn't quite understand at the time. In core, we're like, oh, we're, we're moving and we're screaming. And there's all kinds of, you know, energetic m- movement. And sure. this was very, very subtle and very quiet and... Um, but potent. I mean, I could feel something was happening. And as everyone was breaking, began to break for lunch, I, I, I started to feel this strange, I just felt strange. And so um, I sat up, everybody was leaving the room and I sat up against the wall. And all of a sudden I lurched forward in this force of Shakti, I didn't know at the time, just this force of love just started to surge through me. Um, And I thought, oh my God. And I was kind of embarrassed because it just took hold of me. And I was kind of laid flat out on the floor having a, a massive Kundalini experience where um, just waves and waves of ecstasy were just penetrating my being. I was in this orgiastic state for probably a half an hour. And it was, uh, the way I can describe it was like having an encounter with divine love. And she basically, she broke me open from the inside. She just fucked me open, literally, like on the floor there. I was mm. at her you know, I'll say my greatest mercy in terms of, you know, her, the visitation from her. And um, I just, after it was over, I just laid there I, and I heard, you know, this is the, the path of living with an open heart. Mm. And like I said, I just felt this divine love. It was an encounter with divine love itself that 
was so overwhelming that I, um, I, I, I let it integrate. And that night when I went to bed, I heard my guidance say, you have to ask him to be your teacher. So the workshop went on and, you know, lots of people had lots of, you know, it was profound and deeper realizations. And at the end of the workshop, I, um, I never asked anybody to be my teacher. I was always kind of like the, you know, the person that traipsed the world looking for different, you know, teachers I had. You know, I got Shaktipad in India. I mean, I, I traveled the world, Nepal, you name it. I went everywhere in search of healing for different kinds of healers and never, ever had um, the experience of hearing guidance tell me to choose somebody as a teacher. And... Um, so I went up to him at the end of the workshop and I said, you know, would you be my teacher? And um, he said, you know, are you committed and are you in and are you willing? You know, you're and I said, I, you know, I said yes. And um was that was that a was that hard given what you'd read? Because at that point I'm sure you hadn't talked to him about what you'd read online, and there's all kinds of wild allegations that have circulated the internet, and you having been a victim of sexual abuse was it was it hard or did just your encounter with him cause you to just trust him by the by the expression of his being and so it wasn't it was already resolved in your mind it was already resolved in my in my body mind you right. know it was that i knew i mean i knew i mean it, it i didn't I knew. I, I can, that's the only way I can just, you know, articulate it. I, you know, obviously the the workshop was held in the greatest integrity, and and obviously that energy that came in was so profound. I, I there was nowhere in my body that I questioned the integrity of the of the energy of the of of Mark and his transmission of that energy, and so for me that that was what I needed. It was my heart. I had to follow that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in my experience with him over the years, that was some 10 years ago, um, I've seen his unrelenting devotion to his his students, his the, the people that he works with, um, and just tireless... Um, tireless devotion and 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 love and and gifting and um he's a he's a, a man who truly walks the path of an outrageous lover um i've actually never met anybody like him And you know you're in the position to to know him, yeah. to know him more than anyone. You are his outrageous lover, and he holds the same regard for you. From the moment that we all got together, that was the thing that was so obvious: was how attentive and how loving, and and like how much he revered you and, and worshipped you, and how much he he feels that way to the goddess. You know in general and i think for me that's been 
something that's hard to explain to other people who read things online and wild things online. And then it's like, but then you're there and you feel it and I feel you and I feel like what feels like the truth. And it's like, yeah, all right, we could go through the hundreds of thousands of words and the letter from Sally Kempton and Daniel Schmachtenberger and Barbara Marks Hubbard and Ken Wilber and all of this analysis of this thing and the polygraph tests that you know show, according to this polygraph, a less than 1% chance of deception and all of this whole stuff where you can use your logical mind to try and figure out how the stories arrived and where the stories got askew. And that's all valuable, and I think that's all important because the mind needs to settle itself as well. But it's the feeling. And if people are asking me, which they do, like, Aubrey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it's like, I'm telling you guys, like, I'm, I, I feel it. Like, you felt it. You know, like, I feel it. And I, I wouldn't do it otherwise. Like, it doesn't matter how fucking wise you are. Like, you are very wise, very wise, but I wouldn't do it otherwise. It's not worth it. It's not worth it for me, for Vailana. It's not. And when I was in, when I was in ayahuasca recently, ayahuasca said to me very clearly, which is a clear transmission that I had, says, the true king, the true king stands for justice or else he forfeits his crown. It's simple, simple. You stand for justice or you forfeit your crown. And that simplified things for me because even with those hundreds of thousands of words that are out there about the cases and the events there's also stories on the other side, you know, the actual stories. And of course, the internet has made stories into other stories that aren't even true, that are anybody's actually even accusing you of, but that's another story. But there's, yes, there's other people. And, and I could try and go down this and be one of the people who's litigating by that feeling. But what I fundamentally arrived at ultimately was, okay, the true king stands for justice. Like, what is justice? Justice is that everybody gets their day, gets their day to address the claims against them. We must have that. We must. We must. Or or everything, all of justice falls apart. And we have this idea that the vigilante is the way to create justice. And in some cases, yes, the police are corrupt. And so the vigilante needs to take justice into its own hand. But that's only in the case in which there's such systemic corruption that the justice system itself can no longer serve. And there was a day, there was a time when that existed because of the suppression of the voice of women. There was a time where the whole system was unjust and racially as well. The system of justice was broken, was broken, completely broken. And so people had to take justice into their own hands. And so I understand (laughs) the impetus for this based on the historical context. But we cannot continue to live this way where the mob just gets to come in, 
and declare something and no one gets to respond because of the onslaught of information that comes out. And then that person has to pay the steepest price. Like I know, and I've felt you and I've, I know how much pain that you've been through because of all this. Like I know all of this without ever having your day in court, your day to actually address directly the criticisms and attacks that you face. So you have to put your stuff online and then other people put their stuff online and nothing ever communicates. And meanwhile, you know, look, I won't summarize that, but this is a good chance to turn, you know, to turn to you just to talk about like how this has affected your life, your trajectory in Israel, your ability to reach the world with this message, this transmission that obviously is so incredibly powerful and serves the goddess at large and how it's just, it's unjust that that you haven't been able to have your opportunity to have this moment where you could say, all right, here it is. Now we're talking to each other. Now let's find the truth together. I've been silent about this for so long because it's so hard to know how to speak. And I love words. <laughs> you know, I come from a, you know, Buddhism, which is a place where I practice at times and I love dearly, is about silence and the lineage is about words. So I'm, I'm madly in love with the beauty of words. But there's a place in which words just can't go. And so I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. And yes, of course, you're right, Aubrey, that, you know, Sally Kempton and Ken Wilber and Daniel Schmachtenberger and a, you know, a host of, you know, dozens of just fabulously beautiful people have, you know, evaluated, written about, and, and we did the words because we had to. And, but even the words, I didn't really put up in a serious way till I had no choice. You know, I preferred to stay in silence. And I, I, I broke silence and we created this Who Is Mark Offney place just because we, we owed people the words and we owed people the a way to follow and understand. But if I can step out of all that, it's almost impossible for me to explain an experience where you want to find everybody. You want to love everybody. You want to be in devotion to everyone you can. And you know that there's a certain amount of people who are good people, wonderful people that you won't get to, that you can't find because you're never going to be able to meet each other because in this new structure we have, this this digital world in which information is distributed the ways it's distributed and 
you know, optimized by salaciousness and negativity, and there's no actual meeting, that every single, every single person, literally every single person that you meet, before you ever get to talk to them, if you do, before you're ever in a room together, they will have gone through, because such is the nature of the internet, a kind of bathing in what Sally Kempton once called a, a lake of poison. And you only get to talk to them afterwards. And I mean, every time, if I can, with permission just to be, I'll say to KK, you know, I in general don't, don't do parties. <laughs> we happened to talk about parties recently. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I just don't do parties, right? But at this point in my life, I actually am intensely private. And I, I meet the circle of people that I work with, which is, you know, a few dozen people at the core of the think tank and Zach and Daniel and, you know, and just, you know, a few dozen incredibly wonderful men and women who are all just the most sensitive, beautiful, powerful people I know and gifted and they're a, they're a unique self-symphony and we're working together. But I rarely step out of that because I know that if I walk in someplace and I, I kind of let the great, beautiful eros of the lineage out a little bit, people will feel it. They'll immediately go home excited. And they'll immediately Google me. And, and then I always just in my body and try... I actually hold a very deep privacy because of that. And I, I, I understand that because when we first met, I actually did no Googling. I did no Google searching. Right. There was a miscommunication about someone was supposed to right, right, inform right. me of this before the podcast. It didn't happen. I went straight into the erotic and the holy. Right. You know, finished that holy work. And what a time we had. So excited to meet you here at another room in this fine hotel here that we love in Miami and went through this whole thing. And then, then I was hit with it. So it was actually, I got a different experience, which I feel very blessed to have gotten because I don't know if I would have made it through the lake right? without, it was like a great, it was this interesting gift from she, you could say, in which, in which I didn't have to do that. But then I go out and I tell the story and I say, oh, you, you won't believe this transmission that's come through. And I've been seeking spiritual wisdom in every different way and i'll say this is this is unbelievable and then i've seen someone right there right there on the phone you know google search you right and i've seen what comes up in the image searches and the other searches and i've just seen their face go blank and i've felt my own heart drop and and just be like wow and and this yes and this is about I mean, two things here, and they're two two separate things. And one, what comes up now is fierceness, and you can feel it in my right in the tone. Right, we have to actually create a world in which we restructure the digital, in which we restructure. You know, I was watching with KK because we were preparing for a a series of talks in which we were going to do a deep reading of public culture through movies. And we looked at two clips and one of them was Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan, which is an incredible 
clip in which you see these boys, right? Remember, we saw it, love, these 18-year-old boys, Montana, Manhattan, Kansas, swarming Omaha Beach. Men, right? And, you know, when you, when you talk about the demonization of men, you got to think of those men, like these beautiful boys, knowing many of them were going to die. And what are you willing to die for? What were they dying for? They were dying for, and I'm going to use a, an unpopular word, but unpopular word and a word that's been rightly critiqued, but, but still stands for the American way, for the beauty of the United States. And by beauty, I don't mean apple pie, with all due respect to apple, apple pie, but, but I mean, I understand, right? or baseball, right? And I'm taking my son, who's 11, for two incredible days of baseball, and we've got the best seats behind the dugout, right? Kansas City against um, San Francisco Giants in the 14th and the 15th. You're all welcome, right? Mm-hmm. So baseball is good. But what America stands for is this huge leap in evolutionary love, right? She, Lady Justice, that we're held in the arms of justice, right? That the way we gather information, the way we evaluate people, the way we render, not just in a court, but in the in the public square and the public commons, we've got this tragedy of the commons, which is unimaginable. And what was it that the, the jurist Blackstone said? He said, better a hundred guilty men go free than one guilty man be hung. You know, and Jefferson said, you know, you know, better a thousand, right? In other times. And KK was just relating, she was just in Mexico, and we've heard it from many people in deep love and honor to Mexico. And from so many friends I've heard they're in Mexico and something goes wrong and they, they want to go to the local authorities and something was stolen. They realize oh, the local authorities were somehow involved in that story. And all of a sudden they realize, oh, we're not we're not in America. Right? We're like, right? And so how we evaluate information. And, and, and she's blessed me, you know, Aubrey, right? In other words, meaning I'm standing and I'm, and I'm, I'm strong because of her. She's, she's raised me up. She's, she's, she's been inside of me and she broke my heart open. And she said to me, she whispered in my ear, you have to refuse to participate in any sense of being canceled. And so I've refused and I've just gone on. But, but the, the experience of, of actually being mediated by an algorithm that's owned privately, right? That selects for salaciousness that doesn't allow for conversation, right? And, and actually everything that happened in the key moment where we're kind of a, a set of ostensible false complaints, there weren't actually even any complaints registered any place. That was also an untruth. But when that happens, it all happens on the internet, right? In other words, <laughs> there was never any conversation. There was never any, any anything. And so we have to liberate ourselves. We have to, if you will, seduce ourselves to arouse ourselves to justice, right? And, and liberate ourselves from, you know, what we might call kind of the, the pseudo- ecstasies of the digital, of Twitter threads. You know, the, 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 the second movie that Kek and I were watching was Temple of Doom, right? Remember, right? And you recommend, she said, we have to watch this. I said, really? Do we have to? She said, no, no, we have to. I, I can hear, we have to watch. I said, okay. So we, we, we look at Temple of Doom and there's this incredible two scenes 
of this mob, right? This religious mob, right? Serving a corrupt vision, which they rip someone's heart up, someone's heart out and offer this person up. And the mob is just completely entranced. And that pseudo ecstasy that violates human personhood, that violates fair principles of information gathering. And, and I've said, you know, most of the issues on the web, the two core ones that are most circulated are from 40 years ago, just to get the, the context, right? And, and a set of issues that, you know, the same group of people, all the people that were involved in the, these sets of issues all know each other and they're all connected. They're not, there's not a kind of pattern. There's a, a kind of what Daniel calls false pattern recognition. There's collapsed timelines, but none of that is the issue now. But I've said time and again, that I would at any time or day meet anyone in a mediated, safe context, face-to-face. Let's do genuine information gathering, genuine fact-checking, and let's create resolution. Let's create transformation. And of course, there's been no takers. And so I'm not going to talk about anyone, right? In other words, unless someone would anew launch an attack, in which case I would respond fiercely with full information. But unless that happens, I'm not going to do to people what they did to me, right? Meaning talk about them without them in the room, without face-to-face, you know, anything that needed to be said, I've, I've said on who is Mark Goffney on that website. But, oh my God, how do we expect Israelis and Palestinians, Hutus and Tutsis, right? How do we expect people who have hurt each other in such brutal ways, we expect them to make peace. And yet we can't find a way to heal our own pain of eros. Yeah. And, and we have to. There's a few things that come up when you say this. Of course, this scene from the Temple of Doom yeah. is not just fiction. This happened in, the, in Salem with yeah. the witches. This happened in the Inquisition. This happened in the McCarthyism hunt for communists and that witch hunt. This yeah. happened in all kinds of crowds of mobs that lynched and hung and, and did atrocious things. And, and to identify that, there's the, the dark, sadistic, pseudo-ecstasy of tearing someone apart yeah. that, that has been a part, a sad and tragic part of our history. Like this, this exists, except now it's gone in many ways, virtual. And it doesn't mean that occasionally, occasionally those mobs come in a justified way, right? But the fact that you could, you, it is never justified because it's, it's well, reifying injustice itself. Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, perhaps I can gently, and we've talked about this, offer a distinction. Like, how do you, how do you distinguish? I mean, that's a great, because, because sometimes you need a groundswell, right? The, the, the internet has value, right? The internet's, for example, allowed people who couldn't get their story told because the structures of the gatekeepers of power, they didn't have access. And so, so you can actually and the bypass- gate, And the gatekeepers of power were corrupt themselves. And, and were corrupt. Biased so, racially right. or sexually so we, or any so other we way. Hoped, right? We hoped that the internet would then give voice. But we didn't anticipate, right, in the kind of innocence of the internet that actually you're also bypassing integrity on the internet. You're also creating a culture which is toxic and you're actually weaponizing personal story 
not allowing, right, the structures of Lady Justice, of she, right, to actually create resolution, right, to create fact-checking, to create information gathering. But, but let's go back a step, just, just two steps. So just talk about Salem, because you, you spoke about Salem. I mean, what was Salem? And Salem took place really, it started in Europe and then came to the United States. We're talking about women. I mean, according to some historical evaluation, millions of women, according to others, hundreds of thousands of women, burnt at the stake because their sexuality was somehow post-conventional because their healing capacities didn't fit into the doctrines of the church. And what would happen is there'd be an accusation. It would, like the pseudo-ecstasies of the digital, spread through the town. There were often hidden agendas, political agendas, creating the accusation. We know that historically in scholarship to serve other political agendas. So it actually wasn't what it looked like. It was serving subterranean agendas. And there was never one accusation. The way it always worked was all of a sudden you had a dozen eyewitness testimonies of a woman being a witch. Now just notice the demonization. A witch means you're demonized. You're dehumanized. And when the, the context was religious, you used witch. Today on the internet, we use narcissist or, or sociopath, right? Or, right, there's a whole language, which is our secular psychological language for witch. Or predator. Or, or predator. And we, we, we diagnose, right? The same way they religiously diagnosed. And, and all of a sudden, the woman was, out, was without recourse. And it's, it's shocking. It, it's, it's a shocking horror. And Salem reenacts itself in Twitter threads all the time. And, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a very, another personal, mm. a personal story about this is, um, mm. so I was apprenticed in a particular type of bodywork from my teacher, Porangi. And in combination with some light medicine, psychedelic medicine, I'm able to go in and enter the somatic body and also the etheric body of the individual that I'm giving the body work to. And um, I, did a, I did a session for my sister, Blue, who's been on this podcast. And again, this sounds all magical and maybe woo-woo to some people, but this is what I felt. And uh, she's one of the most magical beings next to my wife that I've ever met. And I could feel in her body, I could feel the flames that were coming up from her feet. She was tied to a stake in some past life. And the flames ripping at her flesh and moving up slowly, slowly from her toes, up her legs tearing the flesh off of her bones, going up and up and up. I could feel it. I could feel it. And this is not some distant past. This is hundreds of years ago that this was happening. And so, yeah, yes, we, our digital version is not that. It's not that. It's softer than that thankfully thank god thank goddess but it's the same energy just applied in a different way not that heinous and violent and but it's it's that same result which is there there must be a scapegoat 
there must be someone to pay the price for this feeling of whatever it was, free-floating anxiety, the scapegoating, the, the problem that could be solved through violence. I mean, oh my God, right? The, the, in the, the early feminists so beautifully wrote that, that rape, the horror of rape, is not only to the body, it's the rape of a soul. Right, it's the rape they called. They talked about the rape of a name. Right, and and these powerful women who brought this new wave of the emergence of the feminine into being. Think of when you think of what it means to to have your name abused or your name raped or to have sexual abuse, meaning the abuse of the sexual through its through telling falsehoods about it, through distorting it, through passing it through a prism of memory. And then, right, that experience is, is unimaginable. My, my experience 20 years ago, you know, at a, at a key moment was that my baby that I had raised for years was killed. And I couldn't even mourn because I was accused of killing her. Right? And... I mean, I, I, you know. And your baby was your name? My baby was, was the Dharma. Mm. My baby was, was the Dharma, was the teaching, was, was the, 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 the lineage. My baby was, 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 was everything that was moving in me to share about Eros. And, and the only way, and KK, we've, we've talked about this so many times, love, and Aubrey, the only way I survived it was that she held me. Right? In other words, and I, I prayed not to become bitter. Right? And, and she, she granted me that. I, and I'm so ecstatic and so grateful. And I remember there was a certain moment and I was at Sally Kempton's home teaching and she was writing, I think, her column for Yoga Journal in the next room. And I heard this, this voice and I had run into silence and I couldn't, I had nothing left to say. And I thought, I thought just, it's just too painful. I can't teach anymore. It was 2011. And I had just gone through kind of another round of, of just, you know, the same people and the same thing. And this voice said, it said, you know, we live in a world of outrageous pain. And the only response to outrageous pain is outrageous love. And then I just, I don't remember what happened, but I just, there was like a two hour teaching. I don't remember any of it. And Sally, who always does what she's doing and ignores what I'm doing in the next room. And when I'm visiting, had taken notes on the whole thing and brought it in and, and, and gave it to me. And I was just filled with this intense gratitude and and this next sentence that I'm, I'm feeling, it, it's going to seem to be not believable, but, but it's true. I wouldn't trade in any of the pain, right? KK said, right, the wound becomes the gift. In other words, had I not gone through this, you know, I would have been, you know, a, a talented, gifted, dude 
running around, probably a little bit of an asshole, right? <laughs> you know, mm. you know, doing my thing, right? Doing my teaching, you know, a little too self-involved, a little too excited about the teaching. And she ripped me apart. I mean, that's college. She ripped me apart. She just ripped me into shreds. And in a place in which I remember in 2006, at that point, I hadn't yet recovered the information, which we did in the end to disprove the false claims. And the, but we, were, we recovered it all in the end and were able to do that. But at that point, I didn't know if I'd be able to recover material that had been deleted from my computer. So I didn't know if I'd ever be able to recover. And these were, just to get people clear, there was accusations when you were in Israel. This, that, this is a, yeah, and with that. And, and, I, and, I, yeah. don't, and I don't want to go deep yeah, yeah. down the rabbit hole, but just for people to understand yeah, there what were, there recovering were, there were, the information yeah, there were, is. There was, that's right. There were, there were a set of claims to people specifically when I was in Israel. The, the, uh, and there was an enormous email thread that would falsify the claims and you know an enormous amount of email had been intentionally deleted from my computer and these were about consensual relationships these were about that you had consensual and loving and mutual right and and we were able to recover all the material right and in great honor to the people who I still love right? and in honor and wish the best for right you know and I'm not going to respond to them or or speak about them and, and I wish them mad blessing right but, but at that point, I didn't know if it would be recovered. And, and my name was so devastated. Like I could, there was no ordinary place to live. I just couldn't live. And so either I was going to die or, or she, she had to create a place, someplace other than this world where she would hold me. And, and I remember being at a restaurant in the middle of this period, I went, by myself to sit and just think. And the waitress comes over to me and, and I, she said, you look sad. And she was just kind, she smiled. And just my whole heart just burst into tears. And she was like, wow. And so she, she broke me open. And, and, and every time in the last 15, 17 years when the the normal structures of self would seek to rebuild themselves in me because we forget very quickly, right? She'd break me open again, mm -hmm. right? And, and she's, she's been hard on me, right? And Aubrey, I, on everything that's holy, like if I could, press a button and not have it happen, I'd not have it happen because, because of all the people that got hurt, right? But there's another button that I would never press because of the insane gifts, right? That, that, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. In, and again, there's the story and there's so many resources that we can link to in the show notes where you tell the story and yeah. that. But one of the things that struck me when I was rereading the stories, you know, again, last night was, you know, one of the principal accusations 
you know, they'll link your name to pedophile, which is one of the strongest and justifiably so. It's one of the most heinous acts. And yeah. every partner I've been with has experienced some yeah. version of that. You know, maybe every is an exaggeration, but yeah. the vast majority have experienced and I feel their pain and it's yeah. the most heinous thing that I've ever seen. And when, you know, Tim Ballard of OUR Rescue came on the podcast and was talking about what he was doing for the oh sex trafficking field. And this was before I had on and I was like, this is all, this is the money that I have. Like do this, help this, like fight this, even though he was only dealing with dozens of people and not the thousands and tens of thousands or millions that suffer. Like, of course, of course it touches. And that's, been the name that's been linked to you and it's been because when you were 19 you had a relationship with a 14 year old so someone who was a freshman in high school you just graduated I'll, I'll, yeah, high school. I'll, yeah i'll you know it's the most you know and I actually called on the way over here i called um just a, a person who's you know my counsel um you know legally and i just asked do i have permission to talk about this and he said yes but you know he said you know just you know, just because you don't even, you know, there's always constraints in talking about things. But, and again, I wish this person only blessing, you know, and, and there's a fierceness, outrageous love has outrage to it. You know, if I can, with your permission, your permission, KK, just to tell you a little story. I was in Salt Lake and I'll answer it directly. Mm. I was in Salt Lake and I, I came to Salt Lake after, you know, I left Israel. And during the time where I was just recovering my energy and recovering my computer and just gathering the information to establish truth, and I went to the, you know, the, the person who was a friend who was actually the chief justice of Utah, set me up with who he thought was the most talented polygrapher in America. And I, I did all these things, everything you could do. And at that point, uh, a dear friend was with me with her two kids, Dalit. And we didn't really know anyone. And so there was this, family that did these like Friday night Sabbath dinners. And so Dalit had heard about them and we got invited and I literally couldn't talk then. It was, I couldn't talk. I was tearing all the time. I couldn't chant. And we went for one or two weeks. And the third week, you know, the man calls me. And this is before we had put anything up on the web. This was in the period of just silence and waiting. And we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if I could recover from my computer and all of that. And the man calls me over and he says, please, you know, come talk to me, the, the host. And he says, he says, you know, I can feel you. Like, you know, I, I love you, brother, but you, you've got to leave right now. I said, I've got to leave right now? He says, you have to leave right now. He says, because the women are afraid. Because they went online, right? And, and they saw that word. And so where that word comes from, it's a horrific word. And we all, of course, stand in, with broken hearts. I was just out of high school. I had a relationship that involved essentially teenage necking for a few months with someone who was in the beginning of high school, right? My version of what happened was confirmed by this polygraph, right? And... No sex. No, no, no. I'm teenage necking. 
right? I'm saying another, nothing even vaguely. It's kind of an old fashioned word, so I don't exactly yeah, yeah, know what that nothing, is. Meaning but nothing, making nothing, out and, nothing below the waist, nothing approaching, yeah. anything vaguely approaching sex, right? I mean, not only no sex, but nothing even digital, nothing, yeah. right? Um, and, and at that time in New York, there was no law against that, right? It wasn't illegal even, right, to be clear. But that didn't even enter our mind. It, I, that I only know 40 years later, but that, it didn't even occur to us. It wasn't even in the space between us. What was in the space between us were Orthodox Jewish laws about whether you were allowed to have physical contact before marriage. That was in the space between us, but nothing else was even in the space between us. And, you know, this person wrote me a, the most heartrending, beautiful letter when I actually ended our relationship and I ended our relationship because I was kind of committed to a certain kind of orthodoxy and the age gap was such that we couldn't, wasn't enough time to wait to get married. And I didn't know how to, how to handle that. And I felt, you know, committed to this, this vision. And I said, you know, her name. And I said, I think we have to, we have to end. And, you know, there was a, a nickname that I used for her and she used for me. And she wrote me the, the most beautiful heart-rending letter you know, about how we needed to be together. And it was actually about the existence of that letter that I did the polygraph, right? And, and that was it. That was the whole story. I didn't, there was no sense then that it was a story. Mm. Meaning, and it wasn't, it wasn't a story then, it was a, right? And in retrospect, by the way, I regret the relationship, right? Because who knew that it could cause pain in that kind of way, right? And I was, and we were both deeply in, in the space of just gently loving each other, right? We would walk through, you know, the Met in New York and look at paintings. And then a whole series of things obviously happened on her side and political adversaries very early on, almost 40 years ago, you know, kind of hijacked her. And then gradually over the decades, the story changed and shit shifted and her version changed a few times and morphed and you know and it and and it became something entirely different but that's actually what happened how many i mean i can just put myself in the position of knowing that there was a letter there was an actual letter that was written is not an email back then it was a real letter and like i could just imagine you being like fuck i wish i kept that letter Right, oh, I, and I, but I want to go with, yeah, totally, brother, and I want to just go a different place. So what happens is regularly, like I will get, you know, some feedback from someone saying, which is clear in their eyes, that the story they heard is that 55-year-old Dr. Goffney, right, was involved with a 13-year-old. And so that's how the story's bandied around. And so the story's bandied around and has shown up all over the internet that way, where Dr. Goffney or Rabbi Goffney, right, you know, 50, 60, 40, you know, 45 involved with a 13-year-old. In other words, the fact that I was a teenager right out of high school, right, and she was, you know, in the beginning of high school, and that the story was, you know, this very, very, you know, innocent, you know, virtually chaste, right, encounter, right, is lost. And then it gets, it gets repeated again and again in the the grist of the mill, right, of the pseudo-ecstasies of the digital. And at a certain point, right, you can't even find your way. Well, and even even 13 versus 14, it's just 
right? It's it just goes adjusting, down. adjusting the age adjusting a little bit slightly. And, and, and again, I don't want to go into any details. We actually had to do the hard things, hire a private detective, find out the, the, the right, you know, the right birthday to remember when it started to find evidence. I mean, we did all the hard work on this, but all I'd like to do is, which I don't think will happen in this lifetime, and I've offered it for decades, is said in a mediated context. And let's actually, but so it, it's beyond tragic. It's beyond painful. And, and also, and I, I apologize for this, but, but I have to say it's also not okay, right? And because the divine feminine doesn't live, right, in women as opposed to men, right? And so there's, the transgender movement has a good point. Their point is it's not about boy-girl, right? That's, it's not a boy-girl gender issue. The divine feminine lives in me and lives in you and lives in, in, in your, your holy partner, V, and in, in KK, and, and in men and women all over the place. And so the fact that a person is in a male or female body doesn't give them license, right? And there's also a fierceness to this. It's not okay. It's not okay, right? And, and we have to also stand for justice and for she and for, for serving Lady Justice and, and not kind of get lost in a kind of cheap grace or cheap kind of tenderness, which doesn't hold the fierceness of these boys dying on the beaches of Omaha for the sake of justice, for the sake of fairness, mm-hmm. for the sake of integrity. And think about if it was my daughter who was falsely accused or your daughter, right? Or our sister or our brother or our mother. Or my son. Or, or, your, or our sons, right? It's, and so, although on the one hand, I've, I've kind of refused because she's, she's allowed me to, she's, she's whispered, she's held me to become bitter. But I'm not just tender on this. Uh, I'm also fierce for the sake of all of the people who are in prison today who don't have funds to prove that they're innocent. And I was blessed. I was blessed that people helped me gather information. People, you know, created resources that allowed me to recover a computer, to, to do all sorts of things that the average person can't do. I remember, KK, you remember we were sitting with Michael. I was sitting with Michael Beckwith, and it was 2007. And Michael's a wonderful man, and he's, uh, he has a, a church in LA called Agape. Mm-hmm. And Michael and I were going over the story, and Michael looked at me and he said, you are such a white boy. He says, this happens to the brothers all the time, right? But you have the resources, you're going to walk through this. He said, you know how many brothers I know who haven't walked through it, right? Because there were hidden stories and hidden actors and accusations made and they, they couldn't afford to recover the evidence. They didn't have people or a chief justice who could put them in touch with the best polygrapher. And it's, I was privileged, madly privileged. And I'm so grateful, but the amount of people today who are destroyed in the digital or in the court system because they can't actually defend right their good name because they just don't have the resources mm-hmm. because they're poor because they don't have the the right relationships and you know i said to barbara marks hubbard who's just this great woman you know and fierce you know teacher of conscious evolution you know 
and she really stood with me in this so deeply and so beautifully, right? She stood with KK and with myself. And, you know, Barbara said to me at one point, there was a, it was a frustrated moment. And Barbara used to like to have her with KK. So they, they'd have a glass of wine every day at five. So it's five o'clock. It's time for, for mm-hmm. wine. And Barbara could have a couple five of Five o'clock glass, somewhere. But it's time for wine, right? It's five o'clock somewhere. It's time for, for wine, right? And, and Barbara said, you know, like, Mark, if only we didn't have to deal with this. Right, and and I just had this flash of clarity, and KK did, and Barbara, we all had it, at the, and Barbara at the same time, and and Zach was there, Zach Stein, and and I said, you know, actually, I just got clear. This is not a a bug in the system; it's a feature. And it's, we had to go through this. It, this is part of she. This is part of Lady Justice, and and it, it it's it's hard, but this is where it is, and and this is and the works here. It's. And this is the Dharma. And, and, and we are the Dharma, right? We are the Dharma. It's, it's how we hold each other. And so, yeah. Hmm. You know, I, there's a couple things that come to mind. One is, mm. I think, in popular culture right now, we're seeing something that started similarly as accusations that flourished online in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And that happened many years ago. And we haven't seen Johnny Depp in a movie for many years. He files a lawsuit, $50 million defamation. And then eventually it works its way to the court. And somehow they made a deal where the full trial would be actually shown on TV. And so now all of the evidence is coming through. And they're, they're having this moment. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't guarantee that the jurors or whatever will find the truth, but at least the stories are being told and met and cross-examined. And we're actually mm-hmm. seeing something which is, oh, the story wasn't quite so simple. And mm-hmm. at the same time, we're seeing the weaponization of memes that actually mm-hmm. come out. And I, you know, even myself found myself aware of all of these issues in the meta perspective, victim, because I'm not watching the trial. I don't have right. time to watch the trial, but there was an incredibly hilarious meme that involved Amber Heard presumably shitting on Johnny Depp's side of the bed. And they set the theme of it was human fecal matter to the Metallica song, Nothing Else Matters. <laughs> and it was so hilarious that it was like, it made its way around. And then that that shifted my perspective, but it shouldn't have. But that's that was my limited interaction. And it was linked to this, this seemingly ridiculous thing. And so even in the instance where actually there is a trial that's actually happening, where all of the information is out, still the internet can skew different things in a different way. Yeah, I mean, and, and KK maybe will speak, because KK, I think you know Johnny, right? Um, but, 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 and Johnny Depp is the ultimate privileged person in the sense of having the funds to be able to do this. Right. Right? In other words, and I, I'm not tracking it, and I know it's a, a complex story, but, but just to look just at that thing, the average human being, man or woman, can't do what Johnny Depp did. It's not available. He had this insane privilege of being able to at least convene it, and he spent, you know, $30 million, $40 million on lawyers. It's like, you know, one of the reasons I didn't take certain courses at certain points is I didn't have a couple million dollars to burn, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, 
you know, a, a particular person who was, you know, and it turned out that there were, there was a claim made that there were complaints made to the police, which turned out not to be true. And it's for 10 years, that claim was made. We actually hired a person in Israel 10 years later. The police rejected the complaints. There never were any complaints, but we thought there were for a time by these two people. And at that time, when we thought that was the case back in 2006, and just get the implications of that. And because of that, I didn't visit Israel for a decade. I missed my son's wedding, right? I mean, it's, it's right. So that even the claim of complaints was, was false. But at that time, I, I looked into, okay, so what would it take to, to engage this? And I, I was told, well, you need two, $3 million, right? To be able to have the sets of people you need in order to engage this properly. And I didn't have two, $3 million, right? And so instead I, I went silent and put up a website and you know, and did the path that I could do. So, so just even invoking Johnny, which is in all the important ways you did, and it also invokes who's got $30 million to blow and mm-hmm. just, KK. Yeah, no, no, just, yeah. I get it. Yeah. This is, um, you know, I think really what we're talking about is, so what is the ultimately the way forward in this? And I think another big issue for me is, is that, knowing that to actually and and a lot of the torah a lot of the lineage is about these these cases of law and how how things are adjudicated and then the genius ways in which certain people have adjudicated them's beautiful stories and we'll tell those stories maybe in another podcast on the lineage but ultimately you know nobody is going to be able to be in that seat to take the full amount of time to do this well i mean some of your some of your you know, close allies have, and some other people have done, done their best in this. But to me, ultimately, what, what is important is this, what I experience from both of you, and to know that, yes, I'm not going to be able to go knock on everybody's house door and talk to them and talk to everybody and pour over every different thing. And most people listening to this aren't. And, and in all cases, most people aren't going to be able to find that unless you're watching every moment of the herd depth trial, like the juries, the jurors are like, there has to be a little bit of, well, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure. And then, so for me, I have the anthro ontological feeling, that thing that I feel in myself, that I experience you and I experience you that says, okay, like I trust. I trust by the way that I see you not only interact with KK, but I interact with every server that we've, you know, had in a restaurant and every every different interaction, how you've been so conscientious and and you know loving of my wife when she's been around and all of these different pieces. And also to know that for the last 10 years, you guys have been inseparably together. And this idea that like this is a this is a danger that needs to be caged and prevented and more restrictions and more bindings and, and straight jackets around your word and your, your expression that that must continue is, does not feel anywhere close to justice. Like there is a message that you've been cultivating from deep readings of thousand year old texts that you've brought to light and a message of transmissions that come from the heart from both of you that that need to be heard in my feeling like that have a significant impact for the world and so i know 
I know that I'll get criticized, you know, for this podcast and other podcasts. And I know that. And, but there's this deep trust that like, here we are. And I, and I deeply trust what's happening between you, what I feel. And also there's a lot that makes sense in the past, but I'm not in the position to just rubber stamp it and say, I know for sure, because I don't. And until there is someone who dedicates their time and their profession and their life to that thing, which isn't, doesn't seem like it's going to happen, there isn't that. There's just evidence that people can dive in as much as they want. But it's just this strong sense, like what must happen is we must move forward and be able to revive these lineage wisdoms and these teachings of how to heal and bring them forward in the world, even if it means that we take arrows. Because I've also, and let me just say this, eight years ago, I'm sitting in my office at Onnit, and we had a partnership with 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu where we actually owned one of the franchises. We had an, uh, we had an assistant jiu-jitsu coach and that person got fired by our head jiu-jitsu coach. This is not my division. I'm a white belt. I mean, I can roll around and have some fun, but I don't know that much about jiu-jitsu. Like a little bit, but it's not my, I, I don't know enough. So I allowed that thing to operate as it should. He gets let go. On it hosts an invitational tournament for jiu-jitsu. And I had interacted with this assistant jiu-jitsu coach only a few short times. One was actually in a kendo match where mm. we have our shinai, our bamboo swords and our helmets and the whole thing. And we squared off in kendo in, a, in the big gym that we have there with the crowd watching and someone taking photos. And then there was like very, very few interactions that I had with him, period. You know? And then I see these posts coming out on Facebook because our head jiu-jitsu instructor said, you know, that he wasn't fit to compete in the Onan Invitational. And he posts a story that the reason why he wasn't invited to the Onan Invitational was because I made sexual advances towards him. And Mm. he said no. He said no. And so I barred him from competing. And he posts all of these posts and I'm fucking flabbergasted. And as just this strange fucking insult, he's like, after I whipped him in kendo, and I'm like, bro, that is not how that kendo match went. And that was a little bit of my own ego going like, you son of a bitch, twice. One time for serious, and one time like, come on, man. And then so I was like, flood. I mean, my, my whole body drained of blood, and I'm like, what? in the fuck. And then there's a jujitsu blog who followed this guy and this, they want to write an article. So I'm like, what do I do? Do I talk to him? Do I not talk to him? Do I address it? Do I not address it? You know, and it was this wild few days where I like, I call up, you know, I call up Joe and I'm like the fucking craziest shit happened. Like blah, blah, blah. And, And this whole thing happened. Well, I'm fortunate. I mean, this guy was 6'3", 230. He's a big-ass dude. And, and I am not gay or bisexual. You know, mad love and respect to those people on the path. It's just not in my nature. So because of that, perhaps because he was a man, perhaps because people had some kind of 
faith in me actually authentically expressing my sexuality. The thing, it rose in this kind of moment where, and then it, then lots mm-hmm. of people chimed in about his men- mental instability, et cetera, and then it died. However, the jujitsu blog published an article and there's an article somewhere on, on the web about this strange, strange story that occurred. And it just, you know, there's, there's a, it sent a shockwave of fear and vulnerability that, you know, in this case, I was very lucky, very, very lucky. Like nothing, nothing came of it, but it was absolutely unfounded in, in any way, wow. you know, but the vulnerable, the vulnerable position that people are in yeah. with the injustice system that we have is immense. And I think that's the, you know, that's the greater purpose of this is not even the single events that happened with me or you or you. It's like, we have to move forward where there is actual justice, that there is yeah. a place where people cannot be subject to this. Because I know so many people who are like carrying this low level stress, myself included, mm-hmm. you know, and I've, I like, of course, we've all made, done things that we wish we would have done differently. You know, like one time in my life in Russia, I was unfaithful to my girlfriend and I told her, but was, am I, am I proud of that? No, I'm not proud of my infidelity that day. You know, I'm not, I'm not proud of that. There's times where I told Whitney everything was okay. And then it wasn't okay. And I got mad at her. And I hurt her because of how mad I got, just verbally, of course. And like, there's all kinds of ways in which I wish I would have done something better. But the truth is, is that I always did my fucking best. I've always like honored and revered and worshiped the goddess in all people, men and women, whether it's an employee that was being terminated or that. But that moment sent this like, this fear, this fear of what could happen, you know, and that still exists. That still exists. And, and we have to create a place where, where justice, justice can hold and that people can trust that what is true will prevail. Or at least if it's undecided, that they will not be incriminated, you know, innocent before proven guilty. Like there's wisdom in those words. And, and we've, yeah, no, it's, it's so beautiful. And, you know, Kick and I were talking about on the way over you know, our, you know, our um, dear friend who's the mother of my son, Marana Kaplan, wrote an article and we were, of course, in dialogue when she wrote it in 2009. And, you know, and we talked about this then to try and establish, like, people do get confused. So I just want to maybe just offer something gentle as we're, we're moving towards closing in, in the service of justice. So how do you discern, right? How do you discern, you know? How do you know the difference between, you know, what is, you know, a legitimate spontaneous outrage? Or for example, when I went, you know, through a smear campaign X amount of years ago, there was a completely orchestrated behind the scenes outrage, which was made to appear spontaneous. How how do you distinguish? And so in that article, Mariana offered you know, a number of distinctions, and I'll just, just very briefly, just in service of she, of justice. So one, if, if you've got a kind of whole explosion happening on the internet or, or any place, and action is taken 
before there's genuine investigation, meaning someone's fired, removed, right? Irreversible action is taken before there's actually investigation, before both sides have heard, before there's actually a face-to-face encounter. So that's litmus test one. If that's happening, something's wrong. Two, if there's new information, right? Are, are people willing to look at, at new information? You know, two. Three, is there demonization? Is, you know, look at the quality and tone of the accusations. Are, can you feel the goodness in them? Or is there this kind of very intense demonization and dehumanization taking place as a kind of quality? Four, is anyone who challenges the demonization attacked? Right? If you challenge the demonization, you're a heretic. Right? So it's kind of a religious demonization. And if you challenge the demonization, you're a heretic. Four. And five, is there kind of a principle in place in which this can never be solved? This is going to go on forever. There's no way for it to be liberated, resolved, healed. So if those five are in place, you know, Mariana pointed towards them, then you can be pretty sure that there's something else happening here. You know, and a gentleman named uh, Dolan, you know, wrote something which was actually very good about how false flags work. You know, and he basically pointed out that a false flag, which happens in the collective space, you know, happens, there's a traumatic event, number one. Number two, it's spread immediately through the internet. Number three, judgment's immediately rendered before investigation. Number four, anyone, same criteria, anyone who challenges the judgment is somehow an infidel. And number five, all the anomalies that don't make sense are, are shunted aside. So, I mean, these are two sets of, you know, one from Dolan and one from Mirana Kaplan, but they're helpful, you know, and, and we need to, and on Who is Mark Offney, there's something called Playlist 4, where I tried to in about 75 videos, right, first off, talk about every single detail because I didn't want to run from it. At a certain point, I said, okay, I was silent for 10 years. I need to step into this. And 15 people wrote very heavily researched articles, but I also did just personally you know, a long list of videos because I felt an obligation to, to speak for justice and, and try to offer, you know, intense sets of distinctions that can guide us in the kind of, the, the, what would I call it, the, the sensuality of sense-making. Mm-hmm. Because I understand why people get confused. I, I mean, in other words, it's not, it's not bad people getting confused. It's confusing. Mm-hmm. And, and we actually need kind of an orientation to actually find our way. And so I found both Dolan's distinctions about false flags and Marina Kaplan's distinctions, very helpful. Yeah. Right? You know, and... In hearing that list that you shared, I think one of the ones that I really want to double-click on is there must be an end. Mm. There must be a resolution to this. And this is one of the elements of the injustice is that there is no end. There is no resolution. It just goes on perpetually in the internet of things and so you know that's a it's a very important thing to get to because at a certain point regardless of innocence or guilt there still must be an end you know and that's and sometimes potentially the guilt is so severe that actually it's life in prison there is no end etc and i'm not disclaiming that as a viable 
op, you know, alternative for the most heinous of acts. Serial murderer. Of course, Serial right? In racist. which case, in which case the end is the end of their life. Right. Right. But in these other cases, with the way that the internet is, we're denied that ability to have an end. And also the opportunity, which is the fabric of a more beautiful world, which is redemption, forgiveness. You know, and, and in the break, Christina, one of the things that you mentioned for you who, you know, suffered real abuse. And I've seen this too in, you know, being a fly on the wall in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy journeys that I've been able, fortunate enough to witness, that as you go through the whole arc of explication, holy shit, I didn't know this happened. Oh my God, I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve this. And then fuck you, motherfucker. Like, fuck you. And then, okay, like I wouldn't be who I am without it. And then the resolution is, I forgive you. Like, so in your journey, did your journey have a similar arc to that? Yeah, exactly. That archetypal arc, right? And I realized at the end that the only way to actually really liberate and free myself was to forgive him. And part of that, I went back into his journey and to his pain and his suffering. And I could understand the the complexity and the pain and the loneliness and the, the, the hardship that he went through. And I released it and, and, and I released him and I released myself. I did, he had passed. And so I had to do a kind of etheric reckoning um, and find him. And we sat down and talked. Yeah. And, you know, you, you know, you think, but I realized that he gave me a gift. I mean, as strange as that is. Um, And, yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I freed myself. I think we, you know, my, my karma this lifetime was to come back and heal this. And by the grace of God, I found my way through, and it was through um, forgiveness and liberation and redemption. And and uh, all I can say is ha- hallelujah. Hmm. You know, it's just a, a, yeah. a profound journey. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that ended in grace. Yeah. And, and, and there's something... Just I know we're, we're closing. That just is also really, really important to say that the, you know, I said yes to KK. You know, in, in that time a decade ago, you know, we spend you know certain amount of time in that formal relationship and did deep work, and of course, in this really beautiful way, the student became the teacher. <laughs> you know, and KK taught me so much. You know, and in our process of, of doing very, very deep work and in, in deep realms, the way she held herself, right? The way she literally enfleshed the Dharma, right? The, the muse she was to me, 
you know, she would, you know, the when, when we started kind of the next part of our relationship, the way she would write kind of love notes is she would send me a passage from Radical Kabbalah, <laughs> which is this, you know, large scholarly work I'd written that she had devoured and then saw it in ways that I didn't see it. Mm. So she'd send me a, a text that I'd written that I'd forgotten, and then she'd interpret the text that I'd written in a way that hadn't even occurred to me. And then so both in, in the world of a body, right, of embodiment and of soma, and in the world of just this deep, wise muse, KK enfleshed everything in a way that I couldn't do. Mm. And she's, and you've brought love to the, to the teaching, something that I never could have done, right? In my, on my best day. And so we, we moved from that early relationship, you know, into a very, very deep partnership in which, you know, we're, we're teaching each other every day and we're, and KK is, you know, incredibly kind and, and, and beautiful and fierce, right? Just stop by one day. Right? She's fierce, right? <laughs> She's a fierce, you know, you know, expression with kind of a fierce sense of, you know, what should be and what needs to be. And, you know, you've worked with us. We've worked together on the, the, this phenomenology of sexuality, the different conversation. And, you know, I'd write and KK would, would critique it and say, no, 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 that, that doesn't feel right or that doesn't feel right, or, or look at this, or she'll, she'd find some source and say, read this. And then we would talk about it. And the old world of teachers and students has value. We need teachers and students, but really we need to be spiritual friends to each other. And so KK's, you know, my dearest friend, right? And partner and, and, and teacher. And just like the deepest, like reverence, you know, and, and honor, my love. Mm. So I just I just wanted to say that. Yeah. You guys co-authored a book, A Return to Eros. Yes. Which is a, a phenomenal piece of work. And, you know, one thing that's somewhat related to that, but also something that I've noticed is we have this very interesting culture where sex sex is actually worse or underneath violence. And right. you see this in video game culture. You can have the most violent video game where people are blowing each other's heads off, you know, chopping off body parts, whatever. And parents will look at their kids playing it and they'll be like, cool, good on you. And then, you know, Janet Jackson's nipple falls out in the Super Bowl and it's an absolute national crisis. Right. Right. And it's, and you see this also in, in, the way in which there are many, many celebrity athletes that have multiple counts of violent domestic right. abuse who are not canceled, right. who are still selling pay-per-views, who are still underneath the bright lights. And sure, there's you know, often a moment of that, but it's a very strange world in which, and, and also... I want to say that I understand that there is something particularly heinous about rape, like particularly, particularly heinous of course. about that particu particularly violent, you know, and intimately violent violation. And this is not to 
undermine that and the intensity and and potentially the good reasons for why that exists. But it's it's just a strange thing that even the healthy expression of sexuality, parents say, no, 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 no. And not even sexuality, just the female form. But violence is is somehow given a free pass. And I and I wonder if it's elements of the war industrial kind of mindset or what it is. And and I know this is a little bit of a misdirection, but since I have you both here on the podcast, just to understand from your perspective how we got to this place where there seems to be this strange world in which violence is somehow better than freely expressed sexuality. KK? No, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and speak into it. But but one of the big topics we talk about in the in the book actually is the murder of Eros, and um, so and the book is about the reclamation, and it's, the book's called a Return to Eros. Right. So I'm gonna yeah, no, I'll thank just you. open that up for you, Mark. You know we you know we have a dear friend um, who's actually a vice president of the think tank, the Center for Integral Wisdom, Warren Farrell, and you know Warren wrote the one of the introductions to a Return to Eros, and he said to me that one of the reasons he wrote it is because of something that really speaks directly to what you just said. He said, if a parent walks by their two kids watching television and they see they're watching this horrifically violent movie, they just walk through and say, oh, thank God, you know, the kids are taken care of. But if they walk through and the kids happen to have turned to a channel where there is a, a revealed breast or something which is, you know, Parents immediately come and you know turn off the television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Warren's like, "What? What happened?" And it's really what a return to us is about. We've we've demonized the sexual because it's the most powerful force we have, and we have no sexual narrative. And what a return to us does is try and outline what are the four major sexual narratives, why they're insufficient. We don't have a story of our sexing that's equal to our sexual experience. And in that collapse of story, there's a collapse of sexuality. Yeah. And so we, we demonize male sexuality, we split off right, feminine sexuality, and we create a culture of men who harass when they shouldn't, right? women who also sometimes harass when they shouldn't, right? men and women who are split off from the goodness of their own sexing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's tragic. And unless we reclaim a new sexual narrative, right, that's actually at the core of our culture and we actually begin to create a culture of eros. By a culture of eros, I don't mean a culture of sexuality. The sexual models the erotic. Mm-hmm. Right? Eros is that experience that uh, of the, the in, in, intense and inherent first principle and first value of love that animates reality, not as a, a woo-woo idea, but as the structure of cosmos. But in, until we reclaim a culture of Eros and a culture of personal identity, which is the human being's unique configuration of Eros and all of that, and that's all for different conversations. But until we do that, we're going to have tragedy beyond imagination in which mm. people feel in their very body shamed. They're shamed by their own essential beingness and our sexuality is our beingness. And, and if, if we can't be at home in our own bodies, right? if we manage to exile people from their deepest experience of their own fuck in the most sacred sense of that word, 
then a person is in shame. And shame means I'm broken. That means I did something bad. I am bad. And the second we create a culture of shame, right? Shame is insidious. It's multi-layered. It festers and it's the root of all evil. And it's the covering of shame that all acting out and all existential risk and right, it all comes from that. And so if the Dharma, we call the Dharma, cosmorotic humanism, return to needs to be anything. You know, Fred Jellis said to me, Fred Jellis is a beautiful man who's one of the, his son Ben actually was, uh, was on our board for a while. So is Fred, who is uh, head of the NAACP. And Fred does this incredible work with men. He's like the hero of Monterey County. And Fred read A Return to Eros, and he wrote me a note, and he said, this is an affront to shame. Mm. It was such a beautiful note. And Fred is, is in, you know, in his 80s, and he's this deep, deep, you know, kind of the, the, the patriarch of the best of left-wing ethos in America. This beautiful, beautiful, you know, elder statesman, you know, masculine, who is she? Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, wow, he said, this is, now I can, this is an affront to shame. And so... So, I mean, I think that's what we, we, we want to be an affront to shame and to, for people to, to be born into their, their unbearable beauty. Mm-hmm. And from there, ethos comes. From there, healing sexual abuse comes. From there, healing existential risk comes. And all of it. Mm. Yeah. Cha. 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 The, the other part of this, just while I have you and because I can't resist, mm. What about the dismissive permissibility of violence? I mean, let's take sex out of it, right? Because this is a two-part thing. I'm comparing and contrasting two elements. Like, obviously, sexuality could be repressed and, and all forms of that could be repressed and violence could be equally repressed in the same way. But just taking the sexual aside, there's this kind of permission slip for violence, not actually done you know, in the physical, except in the cases of war, of course, and maybe that's where it comes from, but just culturally, why that parent, you yeah. know, is like, is so cool with the, with the hor- horrifically violent film, but not the salacious, you know, or just beautiful expression of the feminine or the masculine. Right. There's two kinds of violence. And KK, you know, I've, we've talked about this so many times and you've helped me understand this, right? There's, there, there's one kind of violence, which is physical, and there's another, which is verbal, right? The internet's filled with intense verbal abuse, mm-hmm. right? Which, which is violent, right? There's a, there's a deep violence to it. And violence always is a form of pseudo-eros. When I'm not in my eros, meaning I'm not experiencing eros, it's my experience of radical aliveness, desiring contact and desiring ever more wholeness. That's the movement of Eros. And Eros is the quality of being that I rest in after we make love and we're just, we're just holding each other. We're, we're resting and she, we're resting in Eros. So when there's a collapse of Eros and Eros expresses self in value, the experience of the intrinsic value mm-hmm. of, of our reality. So when there's a collapse of Eros, which is a collapse of value, then we're in the emptiness we can't bear the emptiness, so we cover the emptiness with pseudo-eros. Mm-hmm. Violence is one of the most intensely and easily available forms of pseudo-eros. Mm-hmm. When I do it verbally, since I'm not in the circle of eros, I place someone else outside the circle. Rene Girard talks about scapegoating. 
Mm-hmm. Right? I place someone else outside the circle to give myself the illusion of being inside the circle. Mm-hmm. You know, when two people meet for, for, for dinner and they don't really have anything to say to each other, they talk about a third person they don't know in a somewhat disparaging way to give themselves the illusion that they're in the circle of Eros. Right. So that's verbal violence. And then there's a somatic thrill, right? There's an adrenaline movement. There's a dopamine movement, right? To physical violence, right? Which, which takes place when we don't actually feel the fullness of our Eros and the fullness of our Soma. One of the things that Christina, I mean, to witness a healing, an embodied healing by Christina is, is to witness the goddess at work, but she'll bring a person into their body, mm-hmm. into the enfleshed aliveness of their physicality in which violence to compare to what she does, violence is trivial, mm. uninteresting, boring in the extreme, mm. right? And so when I don't move from, you know, when I'm in my armor, I haven't moved from what we call homo armor to homo amor. That means the new mm. human and the new humanity. I'm not a unique incarnation of the eros of cosmos, and I can't feel that love and fleshed in my body. I desperately need to feel my body because my body is divinity. So I, my pseudo eros is, is violence. Yeah. And so we need to actually, and it's one of Christina's gorgeous works that was missing from the way I was teaching the Dharma, Right, was we really needed desperately this piece of enfleshed work so a person can feel, as the sacred text says, through my flesh, I see God. Mm-hmm. And when I don't do that, I've got to find that in pseudo eros, which becomes physical violence. And you can see that in the, in the online bullying, which has become an absolute epidemic. Absolutely. And, and what they're doing is, People are finding interiority. They're finding the internality and tribal bonding that comes from scapegoating some poor person. And then that person being so far on the outside and so far shunned and shamed and and paralyzed in their ability to move. They lose their life force and commit suicide. They do. And that's, Pseudo-eros. And it's, that's, the, that's the deep tragedy. And so what the solution points to is actually helping helping you know kids as they grow up find their eros and that does not mean the sexual that means eros yeah, like right. and that means it means disambiguating the two obviously they're connected as the sexual models the erotic as you said but finding the eros of their own self sense of self their own body as their body is changing as their relationship to nature and so Yes, we can try and tamp down and squash bullying. Yeah. And of course, those efforts are appreciated. But the other effort, which this points to, is how do we bring those people who would be allured into bullying by their desire for pseudo eros into enough eros where the allurement for bullying is just not there? And for that, we need, I mean, absolutely, I mean, gorgeous, right? And for that, we need a new story of, you know, who am I? Yeah, and who are we, and and where do we live? And that's I know we're going to talk about that in other places, but the collapse of eros, which is the collapse of value, right, is the creator of all shame. Shame is the root of all evil, and you literally, and you know, and KK, we we spend so many nights tracing these roots together. You can literally, and I know this is not our topic now, and so we'll but you literally can trace directly every form of catastrophic and existential risk. You can trace it back to 
the collapse of collective and personal eros. Mm-hmm. Right? When, when eros collapses, right, we're out of alignment with our essential nature. It's why we only feel at home in the world when we're in love. Right. Right. And so, and so and I, I look forward to, to going deeper in that with you, brother. And, and to bring it full circle, like this, that's why this teaching is so important. Yes. This is not just about let's live a happier life where we make love a little bit better right. and the sun sets a little bit sweeter, all well and good. With all due respect for that. Right? It's fucking great. And that's <laughs> that a big not, part of it. Nope. But there's, there's deeper and more powerful implications for the restoration of our entire world that are coming through this lineage, which is once again why the stand for justice yeah. and the reason to have these conversations and to share these conversations becomes part of our collective dharma. I mean, the future is at stake. And That's what, what it I mean, feels like. The futures are right. I mean, yeah. people for existential risk means there'll be no future. So, in other words, literally the trillions of children of men and women, men and men, women and women who are going to make love, right? The, the trillions of beauties that could happen for the first time in human history depend on our generation. And, and at the, the root cause underlying all of the generator functions of existential risk. And I was talking to Daniel about this recently. The root cause is, is a failure of intimacy. Intimacy with myself, intimacy with you, because we don't have a narrative of self. We don't have a narrative of eros. We don't have a narrative of... And, and so this work that we're all doing together, it, it's not a Pollyannish, you know, upper middle class, you know, let's find new ways to enjoy ourselves. This is quite literally... Right, we're facing there being no future. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very Robert Lifton wrote a book called "Facing Apocalypse," right, and about the desire to turn away. We want to turn away. We can't turn towards it. And as you know, Aubrey and KK, you're you're so you're one of the leaders of the think tank. The entire think tank is is committed to responding to existential risk through telling this new story of value, which is a new story of Eros. And that's what we spend all of our days and nights on. And mm-hmm. that's why this matters so much. Yeah. Christina, yeah. a final word from you yeah. as we close this. A Just final word. Whatever comes through your heart, don't worry about if it meets any topical threads. Just bring us home. Let's let the goddess bring us home. The, the enfleshed goddess. Yeah. Mm. Mm. The liner, one of the, um, my favorite um, lineage masters, his vision was that one day every man, woman, and child would have the opportunity to be lived as love. And that's what this transmission gives it gives you the opportunity to actually have an embodied knowing of what it feels like to be lived as love. And from there, all is healed. It sounds kind of yeah. radically simple, but it's just true. Mm-hmm. All can heal from that place, right? Amen. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you Amen. for everything. Thank you, beloved Mark. Thank you, Thank beloved you. Kiki. <laughs> Thank you, Aubrey. Thank yeah. you, brother. And thank yeah, you, sister. Thanks, and thanks, everybody, for listening and tuning in. I love you.
Thanks for tuning in to this very special podcast, everyone. And I just wanted to speak plainly and from the heart about why I chose to podcast with Mark Gaffney again and why I'm choosing to continue to podcast and work with him. The first of these reasons, the first of three, is a simple claim of justice that ultimately no person should be punished indefinitely without the opportunity to confront his accusers, to present his evidence or her evidence, and actually have some sort of adjudication. Now, Mark Gaffney has been punished since 2006. He has not been able to deliver his message. He's been effectively canceled from culture. And for someone who has a great gift to give, like Mark Gaffney, you have to understand the gravitas of what has happened without the fairness of what we would call justice. So it is purely unjust to continue to suppress his message, which I truly believe is a message. And this is the second reason. His message is important for the world. It's not only important for all people, it's particularly important for the repressed feminine. And this is something that's so close to my heart. I love my wife so much. I love my mom so much. I love the feminine so much. And my life doesn't even make sense if I'm not serving the feminine in some way or another. And so in doing this podcast, I understand that I'm going to take arrows and I'm going to get accusations and I'm going to be attacked and it's going to land in some ways and I'm going to feel it. But I know, I truly know that the message that we're putting out is going to help so many people, including the divine feminine, which is a deep, deep and important and perhaps the most important passion of my work to come. And you'll see in subsequent podcasts how important his message is for handling existential risk and just supporting and helping to fix some of the broken structures of our culture. And we're really working hard together to try and put out the best information regarding that. And number three, of course, is I trust him. He's lived at my house with Vailana and I. We've stepped into a deep medicine ceremony where in those type of ceremonies, any type of shadow and distortion, it all comes to the surface. And it's a crucible. And we've been through that together. And I trust both Mark and I trust Christina. We've all been in this together. And I've also looked at the reports of many incredibly intelligent people who've come up reviewed all of the evidence and taken a stand to support Mark Gaffney. And so in the combination of all of that, it's led to a sense of trust. Now, of course, there are things that he has admitted to that he regrets. And I think many of us have those regrets in our life. And ultimately, this is not about me claiming what is right or what is wrong or what happened or what didn't. It's simply those three points that I mentioned, one, it's a sense of justice actually being honored and respected and a deep bow to actually Lady Justice and how that system has developed with all of its flaws. There are some important aspects of it to the importance of this work to the world and the divine feminine. Of course, two of the people standing with him, many of the people standing with him, if you actually look into it, are some of the leaders in feminine empowerment thought, some of the elders. So this is truly important work for the world. It is not trivial. And number three, my personal feeling 
for whatever it's worth of trust from working with them, studying with them, living with them, and being in ceremony with them. So for all of those reasons, I'm going to continue podcasting and continue working with Mark Gaffney and Christina to help get these incredibly important messages out to the world. So I understand and I have the deepest sympathy for anyone who's experienced some of the horror of any type of abuse, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, I'm constantly shocked and appalled and heartbroken by so many people who've had to suffer all kinds of different challenges in our world. And hopefully some of these ideas and thoughts start to heal the world and prevent these things from happening in the future as people start to understand their trauma patterns, their shame, and the repressions that can create some of these violations but my deepest sympathy to anyone who's affected anyone who's been triggered by this podcast or any experience in their life i send you nothing but the utmost love and honor so thank you everybody for listening to this and trying to understand from my perspective as to why this is important i love you all very much and i will see you next week